We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, although you may not want to miss this chapter. This is the chapter we've all been waiting for, right? This is David and Goliath. Um, actually, it's such a long chapter. It's one of the longest narrative sections in the Old Testament. So we're going to have to take it in two parts. So the first, this first part is going to go through verse 37 of chapter 17. I have to share a quick conversation I had actually last night after the Q&A. Uh, West Eves, little West Eves had a question for me after the, after the Q&A time. And he asked me what my favorite Bible story was. And I was like, a great question. None of you guys asked me that. Um, and I said, well, you know, I've been studying David and Goliath this week. So right now I'd say that's my favorite passage. And um, as we were talking, he, uh, Charlie reminded me that he one time asked her, is, you know, is David going to be in heaven? And she's like, oh, sure, absolutely. The faithful man of God. Um, he's like, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask David if he can teach me how to sling those stones. <laughs> to use that slingshot. And I was like, you know what, Wes, I'll be right there with you. I want to learn too. That'll be pretty fun. Um, so we're in chapter 17 this morning. Um, David and Goliath, it's a story most everyone knows. Um, we're going to take it in two parts because it's long, but also I'm going to focus this morning on what led up to David going on the battlefield. What, what did he have to face? What obstacles was he facing um, as he was considering this call in his life to go and fight? Um, for you young people, I've got a riddle that I'm going to ask you in a little bit. So just pay attention. If you pay attention, you'll be able to figure out the riddle uh, in just a few minutes. So just, just listen. Uh, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 37. Let's pay attention. This is God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he held a helmet of bronze in his he- on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are not you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, 
But David went back and forth between Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he went to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them, heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you, have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. And when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth, meditations of our hearts together, be acceptable in your sight. Would you reveal yourself to us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many of us have heard of this story. and We have thoughts about it, of how to apply it. But before we think about what we've already known about this story, I want to say this, that this famous, this is the first lesson really, this famous story is bigger than you realize. That this fits into the overarching grand narrative, grand story of the entire Bible. That this is about 
the promised snake crusher. You go back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden and the curses of God are coming upon them, he also gives a promise. He says, The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That there is going to be this battle one day where this seed of the woman will victory, will have victory over this serpent, over this snake in the garden who came into the garden craftily, deceiving Adam and Eve. When Adam should have crushed this serpent, he was tricked and he gave in and they rebelled against God. That is, that's the grand narrative of Scripture. Genesis to Revelation, that is what it's ultimately about. Pointing ultimately to Jesus himself. So it's more about this story, David and Goliath, it's more about being a courageous believer in God and facing your own giants. The story of David and Goliath is about the entire story of Scripture, good versus evil, God's people versus the armies of the devil himself. And it speaks to the glory of God and the glory of his champion. Goliath here is called a champion. And actually in the Hebrew, it was interesting, I didn't know this before studying this, but that in the Hebrew what it's saying is the man, literally the man that stands between two armies, translates into champion. The man that stands in between the two armies. See, this is an old style of warfare, been around for thousands of years, called really representative warfare, where where two armies, instead of um, uh, each army obliterating each other, they send one representative each to battle, a duel of sorts. And the winner uh, would represent the entire nation and, and the other one would become its slave. So that's the first lesson. This story is bigger than just David and Goliath. The second is that we can learn some things from David, can't we? We can learn some things about what he did here. When we are living for God's glory like David is, we're willing to move toward danger instead of away from it. When we're living for God's glory, big fears become mere obstacles. When we're living for God's glory, rejection from people is replaced with a desire to see God honored and worshipped. You can face rejection. So these giants, any giant, Goliath included, are scary and are strong. But they don't stand a chance against God's champion when God is fighting for his people. So the three main ideas we're going to look at this morning is our champion confronts danger. Number two, our champion conquers fear. And number three, our champion challenges rejection. So We're going to look at our champion this morning in those three ways. We all want to be a champion, don't we? We all want to be a winner. But more importantly, we must have a champion. We want so badly to be David, don't we? put ourselves in his shoes and be this, this hero. But I'm going to ask you to do something different. Don't, don't automatically put yourself in David's place. Learn from David, but see yourself more so in the helplessness of Israel, the fear, the trembling of Israel who need a champion. Before you can be a victorious Christian, you need to embrace the victory that Christ has won already. So let's first look at this idea of, of our champion confronting danger. Okay, so what's the danger? 
What's the danger in chapter 17? Well, it's pretty obvious. Look at verses 4 through 7. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, a man between the two armies, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So this, uh, as one commentator says, this portrayal of Goliath may well be the most detailed physical description of any person found in Scripture. It's very detailed. And why is that? Well, the narrator's trying to explain to us how fearsome he was, how scary he was, how dangerous he was. He was over nine feet tall. He had, uh, as we also read, he had a coat of mail. So he had a huge helmet of bronze on his head. He had this coat of mail. Uh, The weight was about 5,000 shekels of bronze, translated to about 125 pounds of this coat of mail. And he had this spearhead, about, which was about 16 pounds. But just the tip of this spear was 16 pounds. This huge guy. Huge guy. And so, and here's, about to go to the riddle, kids. So, he's wearing this coat of mail. The word for mail in Hebrew is actually scale. So, it looked sort of like he was wearing scales. So, my riddle to you, you kids is, what has scales but is not a fish? Anybody know? Leland? A snake. That's right. Not a piano. A snake. Right. A snake has scales. And so, do you see the imagery that's being portrayed here? This is the same garden imagery. Right? It's not a coincidence that he has these scales of armor on. He's the snake. He is the snake entering the garden that needs to be crushed. And all of Israel is too scared. Goliath was seriously scary. Ever since our kids were young, we liked reading the Jesus Storybook Bible, and they have a great retelling of David and Goliath. I mean, David and Goliath is every kid, every special little boy's favorite story. I'm going to read a portion of this uh, from Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's, it's from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it's explaining, it's retelling verses 1 through 11 here. So there they were. The Philistines standing on top of one hill. God's people standing on the top of the other. Every day Goliath came out and shouted, Send your best soldier to fight me. If he wins, we will be your slaves. But if I win, you will be our slaves. No one spoke. No one moved. Chicken, Goliath bellowed. Your God can't save you. I'll rip your heads off and have you on toast. His beady, greedy eyes glowered at them hungrily from under his horrible helmet, as if any minute he really might just gobble them all up. And he laughed his terrible laugh. Ha, 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 ha. It boomed echoing horribly around and around the dry, dry valley. Love that description. And he did this for 40 days. Morning and evening, for 40 days. They go out to meet him, and no one comes out to fight him. For 40, that's 80 times this happens. And they don't do anything. But what does David do? Well, first we realize he's not at the battle. He has been coming back and forth from watching the sheep to the battle lines. And we know in the last chapter he was in the service of Saul, but that that was probably a temporary service where he would come back and forth. But he's not there to fight. His brothers are. But what does he do as he's he's approaching? He's sent by his father Jesse. In verse 26, we see that David speaks up. David said to the men, this is the first words we get from David in the Bible. And David said to the men who stood by him, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So when you see something, you say something, don't you? When we were going through the UK on our missions trip at the airports, that was the refrain you'd heard over the loudspeaker. When you see stuff, you see something suspicious, say something, right? Don't just stand there. Don't just be a participant in whatever is going on suspicious. If you see something, say something. And so he did. He spoke up. And what did he say? He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? No one had spoken a word. No one had talked about God. But now he was willing to bring God into the equation. And so we need to ask ourselves in our lives, when we're going through difficulty and we're going through trouble and suffering, are we willing to bring a theocentric vision into a godless world. Often when we're going through troubles, when I'm going through a valley a, a, of time of suffering, your temptation is not to talk about God at all, not to pray to him, not to bring him in. But what David is doing teaches us that we need to always be asking, what is God doing here? What is, what is he like? How is he offended at what's happening here? He is defying the armies of the living God. Friends, we live in a scary, dangerous world, isn't it true? I was reminded of that yet again this week. Many of us, like myself, have had the families of the Covenant PCA in Nashville on our minds in prayers this week, even now as they're worshiping again. And it's a reminder, isn't it, of how dangerous and scary the world is. And our theological correctness as Presbyterians, our security plans, our precautions, although wise, does not guarantee our physical safety or our children's physical safety in this world. I'll admit I was more anxious this this past week than ever as I was dropping my kids off at school. One of the stories, though, I've I've been hearing just about the people, a few of the um, head of the school and, and a couple of the teachers who died um, one person who knew the head of the, t- uh, the school very well was that they knew, they didn't know exactly what happened in the building, but they knew that she would have run toward the danger to protect the kids. And so it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that she was one that, that was killed. He ran toward the danger to save those, to confront the danger to save the vulnerable. This is what David's doing. This is what he's doing. How we choose to live in the midst of danger says a lot about the God we worship, doesn't it? Do we worship the gods of comfort, safety, security? Or do we worship the living God who rules and reigns over all things? When we're living for God's glory, like David is here, when we're living for his glory alone, we are then able to not live in fear. And when the time comes and when the vulnerable needs to be saved, we are able to move toward danger and not away from it to save those who need to be saved. You see, Israel was focused on this big, scary giant. But David was focused on his big, promise-keeping God. That's what enabled him to go toward the danger. And he's a picture of, of Jesus 
also doing the same thing for us, that Jesus confronted danger, that he moved toward danger for you and I. I'm reminded of Jesus' epic battle in the desert for 40 days with Satan. After his baptism, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil. We only get a snapshot of three different temptations that Satan um, brought to him. And the last of them was probably the, the most difficult where he says, all these nations, all these kingdoms, Jesus, I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This wiped Jesus out. He needed angels to minister to him after this encounter with Satan. He ran toward the danger. He committed himself to pursuing and saving his bride so that we could find safety in him. He confronted the danger. And that's what David is doing here. He's stepping up, he's speaking up, and he's confronting that danger. The second thing we see is that our champion conquers fear. He conquers fear. When we we see the problems in the world, when we see bad news, we often are tempted to make them become bigger than they are sometimes. And the problems of the world become big when God becomes small, doesn't it? You see, David served a big, living, powerful, promise-keeping God. And what's interesting, you really see the contrast with the soldiers and what they're saying and, and what David says. Look at verse 25. This is when David's at, the, at the, the front lines. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. You see, the soldiers have these words of resignation where David's words are indignation. He is angry, where they are sort of resigned to the fact that this is happening. Look what they say. They, they say, this man. They don't even give him a name. It's like they can't even describe him. They're so, um, they're so uh, scared of him. And they say that he's come to defy Israel. They just talk about their nation. They're not talking about God. They're just talking about what they're able to do. But look at David's words. David's words are of indignation. He says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? To call him an uncircumcised Philistine is to remind the people of God that he is a, a, he's not a worshiper of God. He is outside the covenant people. He's an enemy of God. He hates us. He hates our God. And then he says he came to defy the not, the, not just Israel, but the armies of the living God. He's reminding them who God is, of God's honor. You see, the fear that, that Israel was displaying leads to this sort of fatalism. Fatalism meaning that, oh, this is just the way it's going to be. Well, this is just the way things are. You ever tempted to think that way? I, there's no reason trying to change it because it won't change. It doesn't matter what I do, I can't do anything. But the faith David displayed in the living God leads to action when he is unjustly defied. It leads to action. I mean, why are we angry? This past week, I was angry at what happened in Nashville. Why are we 
angry? Why are we indignant when the lives of our young kids are taken from them? Certainly it's because we never want to be separated from our loved ones, and, and, but more so because the image of God is defied and unjustly trampled on. Isn't that the case? I mean, why should abortion make us indignant? It's because the image of God is denigrated and trampled on. And therefore, God is trampled on. Why should slavery and racism make us indignant? Because the image of God, the image of the living God is treated like garbage. Because God himself is devalued and defiled when his image bearers are trampled on. And so it goes back to God's glory once again for David. This was about giving God his due. This was about the most important justice question. Is God honored? Is God valued? You see, the men of Israel, as one commentator says, the men of Israel see a fearsome giant who is reproaching Israel. But David sees merely an uncircumcised Philistine who has the audacity to reproach the armies of the living God. You see, David, what he saw, what he saw was a large uncircumcised Philistine whose very breath and very heartbeat depended upon David's God. So David knew that his victory was in God's omnipotent hand. The gods of, of, of this Goliath giant guy well, wasn't going to save him. His very existence depended upon David's God, upon Yahweh. So he faced his fear. He faced his fear. And, and he points to Jesus facing his own fear. Where do we see Jesus the most fe- fearful? Isn't it at the Garden of Gethsemane? <clears throat> Where he's in the garden praying to his father before the night before he knows what he's going to have to go through to save us. And he says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if, you're not will- if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And here we have another ministering angel. An angel from heaven strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. You ever been that fearful? You ever been that anxious? Well, Jesus has been more anxious, more fearful than you. But what's the difference? He faced it for you. He looked ahead and knew what he would have to do to save us. The cross, which was not just pain, it was separation from his father. He knew he was going to have to endure that, and it was the worst fear he'd ever faced. But he did it for you. He did it for me. So our champion conquers fear. And lastly, our champion challenges rejection. Our champion challenges rejection. If you notice this, David has major obstacles, even getting to the battle lines. He has obstacles. He has people who don't want him there. Malcolm Gladwell, an author writing on this idea, the story of David and Goliath, he says that David was an underdog and a misfit, and that gave him the freedom to try things no one else had dreamt of. He was a misfit. He was an underdog. People weren't expecting much from David. But that gave him the freedom to do this, to be creative, to be on fire for God, to do this work. 
Look what, he's, look what he faces in verse 28. His older brother, Eliab, the handsome one, the tall one, the one that Samuel thought should be king. His older brother, Eliab, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And I love David's response. It's such a, a younger brother response. What have I done now? Was it not but a word? Another way to translate that is, can I even say, can I even say anything, Eliab? Are you going to be mad at me? I know your evil heart. That's what Eliab says. So Eliab is accusing David of wrong motive, isn't he? He's saying, yo, you just want glory. You just, you just want to be better than us. He knows he's been anointed, doesn't he? He knows he's the one who was anointed to be king. So he faces the anger of his brother. But what else does he face? In verse 33, he, this is before um, Saul, the king. Verse 33, David says to Saul, you know, I used to kill these bears and lions. Actually, before that, verse 33, Saul says, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And he has been a man of war since his youth. Saul questions David's qualifications. His, his age, his abilities. Del Ralph Davis says, One might say David has to fight three Goliaths in this chapter. For in Eliab, he faces the contempt or hatred of Goliath. And in Saul, he meets the mind of Goliath. This idea that, oh, you're small, you're young, you can't do this, you're not qualified. And all of that before he faces the carcass of Goliath himself. So he's being rejected. He's being pushed away, but he keeps on his task. Don't you and I often embrace rejection when we, when we face it instead of push against it when we ought to? Have you ever asked yourself, I know I've been called to this. I know this is what I'm supposed to do, but who am I? Who am I to do this important task? Your past, your low self-esteem holds you back. But instead of focusing on yourself, Focus on the man in between the two armies. Focus on the champion that we've been given. That Jesus himself faced rejection. Think about Jesus' um, the things that he was rejected, uh, the reasons they rejected him. What if Jesus said, who am I? I'm just a lowly son of a carpenter. And how about the circumstances of my birth? I was born in a cattle stall, lived in some podunk town called Nazareth, that nothing good ever seems to come from. Isaiah 53 reminds us he was despised and rejected by men, men of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was not loved. He was not famous. These were all facts that could have held Jesus back. But no, he embraced the rejection. He embraced the slander. He embraced the contempt for who he was or who he wasn't. And so the question is, what drove him? What drove Jesus? Well, it's the same thing that drove David. Passion for God's glory. That's what drove him. In John 17, we get a good picture of what drove Jesus. John 17, 1 through 5, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth. That was his mission. Glorify the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the, foundation, before the world existed. I glorified you on earth. That was his mission, to glorify the Father. That's, why he, that's what drove him. Jesus was laser-focused on God's glory, his fame, his name, and the glory that he would enjoy once again after completing his task. You see, friends, Jesus' task was to become our champion, our man between the two armies. And as our representative... He would face rejection. He would face violence. He would face death so that he could kill the seed of the serpent once and for all. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's what happened at the cross. That was the death nail in Satan and our sin. So wrapping up, how can we learn from David? What does he do that really in these last few verses, in 34 through 37, what does he do that we can learn from? How does he explain? What does he say to Saul? You remember? I have killed bears and lions, and God sustained me then. He's going to sustain me when I go against Goliath. Malcolm Gladwell says, Courage isn't something that you already have that makes you brave when tough times start. Courage is what you earn when you've been through the tough times and you discover they aren't so tough after all. Courage is earned. And you realize, as a believer, that God is faithful after all. That He got me through the tough times. David already knew that. He already understood that. Faith, looking back in faith, as David did, thinking about his time as a shepherd, enables him to look forward in faith. And it's the same thing for us. Looking back in faith will help you look forward in faith. Dale Ralph Davis says, Faith is sustained in the present as it remembers God's provisions in the past. The rich history of God's past goodnesses nurtures faith in its current dilemmas. What current dilemmas are you facing this morning? What difficulties are you facing? What trials are you facing? Have you asked where is the living God in the midst of it? And have you asked, how has God proven to you his care and his protection over you in the past? If he's done it in the past, won't he do it in the present and in the future? You see, David's courage to be Israel's champion, the man between the two armies, points to our need for Christ. That Christ stood between us and the dangers of our sin and the dangers of Satan, and he ran toward the danger. He didn't shrink back. He faced the fear. He challenged the rejection. He came out on the other side of the cross victorious. You know, when we talk about teams that we like, professional or college, um, if you have a a team, and if they've won the Super Bowl, if they've won a World Series, don't people often identify with their champions and say, you know, well, we won the Super Bowl back in 1978, or we won the World Series back in 2019. When you didn't do anything, (laughs) you didn't throw a ball, you didn't catch a pass, you're not on the team, you weren't even on the bench. 
but it's our representative, right? That's the same thing. That, that same motive applies. Christ's victory is your victory, is my victory. And he did it all. And he includes you when you trust in him. And he washes away your sin. He gives you his righteousness. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Dear Lord, you're so good to us, you're so gracious to us to defeat our enemies. Let us never forget the work you've done. Let us not live our lives as if we have to defeat all these giants, these awful things in this world on our own or in our own strength, but know that you have, have killed the worst of our enemies, and that is the penalty and the power of our sin and the ability of Satan to do any harm, ultimate harm to us. Father, be with us, strengthen us, and encourage us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.